Okay. So that was obviously um, The Simpsons. Uh, first couple times I spoke here a number of years ago, I think I showed The Simpsons like three times in a row. So I think I got the reputation as the guy who always shows Simpsons clips. But uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I heard some laughing. So, I mean, it's, it's rough to follow. I guess I'm, I'm a tough act. That is a tough act to follow. But uh, my name is David Hershey. If you uh, are new here, you don't know me, uh, I work over at Penn State Berks. My wife and I and our family attend here. The last time I was up here, uh, Pastor Tim was sick. Uh, he's not sick today, at least not that I know of. Uh, this is a regularly scheduled break for Pastor Tim. And uh, we're continuing this, or in, the, in that clip, actually. Um, of course, there's a trampoline. And, and the main thing I wanted to highlight from the, from the clip is that at the end of it, Homer gives his wife, Marge, a hard time saying that if it was up to her, all they would do is, is work and go to church. She's not very much fun. At least Homer is trying to enjoy life, have a good time, even if it means injuring the entire neighborhood kids with a trampoline. But unfortunately, uh, Christians, more devout people, maybe like Marge, have not really been known as people who have a good time, who do leisure or play very well. One newspaper columnist once said that serious-minded Christians are people who have a deep, foreboding fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time. Uh, The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche noted that Christians are people who have no joy, And a historian uh, who wrote like a history of Western culture starting with like the Roman Empire and going and talking a lot about the history of Christianity then said that Christians are people who basically live with our heads in the clouds. We want to be like the angels and we disdain or hate every earthly delight. Or of course, in the words of Homer, once again, if it was up to you, all we do is work and go to church. Well, we're continuing this series here at Koinos uh, that Tim has done the last couple weeks called What's New. If you remember, three weeks ago, I guess, was the Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We celebrated uh, that Jesus, when he died on the cross, did not stay dead, but he rose again. And we're now talking about a couple different topics in life and how our understanding of Jesus' resurrection maybe shifts or changes how we think about these things. And last week, Tim talked about work. And if you weren't here, I recommend you go listen to that. That was a good one. And I kind of see this week as the flip side of work. If work is all the things you maybe have to do, whether you're getting paid for them or just obligations like doing laundry, taking care of your kids, leisure or play are the things that you choose to do. So we're going to talk about this morning how maybe as Christians we can look at uh, our leisure life, our free time, uh, if, we, if we have any. Some of you are like, what's free time? But what's interesting to me is that uh, leisure or play is a natural part of life. Children at their earliest developmental stages learn about and interact with the world through play. Professor Karen Hutchison wrote that play is actually the work of a child in which they are preparing themselves for adult roles in society at large. You go back to the nursery, watch the kids, and they're just playing. Maybe they're building trains, playing with Legos. Maybe when they get home, they'll go in the backyard. I know neighbors next door have been working on building, I think, their own house out of just random bricks they found laying around. Playing in tree houses, rolling down hills. Just kids naturally love to play 
and enjoy and explore the world. Back in, the, in January when we had this, the blizzard, uh, it was great for some of us adults who have kids who haven't had re- uh, an excuse maybe to go sledding. Uh, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just self-conscious, but without kids as a 29, 30, 31-year-old guy, I wasn't going to go to the local sledding hill by myself. But now that I have kids and the blizzard came, it was great to go down and just go sledding, probably for the first time since I was in college. And just watching the children go flying down the hill, just standing up there, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to cry. And she crashes into a snowbank and pops up with face covered in snow, laughing, having a blast, until you tell her she has to walk back up. <laughs> but it's not just humans and, uh, who, who play. Uh, there's actually... Animals, there's lots of stories and evidence that animals play too. Uh, Ravens in Alaska and Canada, much like our children back in the blizzard, have been seen sledding or snowboarding down the roofs of of houses. There's, and actually when I was preparing this, it was tempting not to get lost in in YouTube videos, so you can find some good ones, but video, uh, just ravens who sled down snow-covered roofs, get to the bottom and then fly or walk back to the top. They saw the same thing in, in Maine with birds who sled down snowbanks just for fun, just like, just like children. And two of the scientists who studied these birds said that we see no obvious utilitarian function for this sliding behavior. In other words, there's no purpose for it. There's no adaptive benefit or function other than these animals are just doing it because they like to have fun. They're enjoying the world. So animals play, humans play. It's as if God, when the universe, when God created the universe, he built into the structure and the function of the universe in all creation creatures who want to enjoy the world that we've been given. And maybe this shouldn't surprise us because if you've ever seen any of the pictures, images from the Hubble telescope, we're finding these pictures of distant galaxies that we've never seen before that up until this point, only God, unless I guess maybe if you believe in aliens or something, but only God has been able to enjoy just the sheer beauty of this amazing and vast universe we live in. There's much evidence that God, is, is, that God enjoys, wants us to enjoy the world. But then when you turn to the Bible, you don't find much in there about leisure or play or free time. And I think the simple part of the reason for this is that in the ancient world, most people didn't really have time for for leisure or free time. Most people worked simply from sunup to sundown. If you worked on a farm or or some other work, you would start working in the morning and work all day to to support your family. The idea of something even like vacation for most people was non-existent. The only people that had time for leisure would have been the wealthiest people around. And for many of them, Leisure would become nearly a full-time occupation. All they did was leisure. So in Roman society, you would have really two groups of people. The slaves who did all the work, and most other people who did work all the time. And then a few super wealthy people who, because they owned slaves and had enough wealth, could just spend all their time relaxing and having leisure. We see a glimpse of this in the Bible in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Uh, Paul goes to the city of Athens And the author tells us when he's describing what Athens in Greece is like, he says that people in Athens did nothing but sit around all day and discuss the latest ideas. 
So if you were someone of a certain economic class, you had the luxury that you could spend your entire life in leisure. And if you were the vast majority of other people, you spent most of your life working. So if we want to get a few clues from the Bible on what we might, as Christians, want to think about leisure, we need to, I think the best place to go as we start to maybe find some principles that we can apply to our lives would be the idea of Sabbath in the Old Testament. So the Sabbath day, uh, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt, God led them out and gave them what are called the Ten Commandments, in addition to many other laws and commands. And one of these Ten Commandments is about the Sabbath day. And I'm going to read this from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. If you've never heard of it before, that's okay. But Deuteronomy chapter 5 says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So in giving this command, this to take one day in every seven off, God reminds them that the reason for this is that they had once been slaves in Egypt. And when they were slaves in Egypt, they worked every day, which meant that every day was the same as yesterday, which is the same as tomorrow. Yesterday, we worked as slaves making bricks out of straw. Today, we're working as slaves making bricks. Tomorrow, we're going to work as slaves making bricks. Our children are going to do this. Their children are going to do this. And it's probably never going to end. But as free people under God's rule, God is we could say breaking up time and saying that there are some days that are different than other days. There's the days you work and there's the day you don't. Sabbath is dividing time by putting, and putting a rhythm then into the universe. Work, rest, work, rest. Sabbath then was meant to remind the people day, week after week, year after year, that ultimately their lives, their success, the entire universe doesn't function on their strength but it functions on God's strength. They can, they can step away from what they're normally working and rest because God is the one that holds up the universe, not them. One uh, illustration of this comes in the story. After they left Egypt, they were journeying from Egypt to the place where they were going to go into the promised land where, where God was going to have them live. And on this journey, God provided food for them. Called, the Bible calls it manna. Every morning they would wake up and there would be just like bread on the ground. And they would go out and gather the bread. And that was the food that God miraculously gave them to eat while they were journeying. But this food was not on the ground every morning. In Exodus uh, 16, it says, Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers. Homers, maybe? I don't know. Two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a Sabbath day, of, a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till morning. So when God is giving them this food to eat, 
it only shows up six days, forcing them to trust God that when they go out on the sixth morning and gather the, the bread, that there's going to be enough to, to last them the entire next day. And there's even parts of the story where some people woke up on, on the seventh day and they went to gather and it wasn't there and they just, I guess, didn't eat that day. Maybe they found some generous neighbors or something. But the teaching here, what God is trying to teach the people is that there's a time to work and then there's a time to trust God that that work you did is going to provide for you in the day of rest. And this idea of this rhythm of work and rest even carries over to taking a seventh year off and letting the land and the fields take a rest. They would work the land and farm and, and, and till the soil for six years and rest in one. The third book of the Bible, Leviticus 25, uh, addresses this topic. It says, you may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So this rhythm of six work, one rest, carries over to work for six years and then trust God that there's going to be enough of a harvest from that sixth year planning to last into the next year when you start planning again throughout the entire year when you don't. So Sabbath is realizing, recognizing that God is in control and trusting that God will provide. And in the face of a world that tells us to never slow down, to push and to push and to push and to work and to work and to work, Sabbath is encouraging to let it go. Uh, a Jewish writer, Abraham Heschel, wrote about the Sabbath. He said, the person who takes a day of rest must say farewell to manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will serve without the help of man. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in our soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh, we try to dominate the self. So what he's saying is we have six days to work at our jobs, our obligations. The seventh day is when we focus on connecting to God. Even we, I would add connecting to other people. But over time, if you follow the story, Sabbath went from being a gift that God gave the people to being a chore. It became a rule to follow. By the time you get to Jesus' day, by, scholars had actually looked at this command by God, observed the Sabbath day, and they were like, well, how do we know if we're working? What counts as work? And there were actually lists of things that they said. This, you want to know what work is? Here's like 39 different things that count as work. And the people would go through their day and they would say, they would go on pins and needles just worried about whether they were going to break a rule. I'm thirsty. Can I open the refrigerator? Well, I can open it, but I can't pour. I can pour, but I can't put the, open the cupboard to get the cup out. Like every little detail, you can lead your animal this far, but not that far. It became something that was meant to be a good gift that just became something where if you stepped out of line, someone would be pointing at you saying, work, you're bad. Nope, don't work. That's not good. We see it glimpse of this uh, in the story of Jesus in Mark 2. He has his disciples are with him, and they're in the field, walking through a field on the Sabbath day, and they get hungry, so they start to pick some grain to eat. And for some reason, maybe just people follow around, Jesus around, wanting to point out times when they think he's breaking the rules. There were some religious leaders there who weren't big fans of Jesus, and as his disciples start to pick the grains, these guys say, look, Jesus, they're breaking the rule. They're not to pick grain." And Jesus says, they're hungry. And then he says, 
that Sabbath was not, uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it's not this thing to weigh you down and to stress you out. It's meant to be a gift of rest and refreshment. And I think over the years since the Bible was written, some, many of us Christians have managed to do the same thing, to turn Sabbath into a rule. When I was probably 12 years old, maybe 11, I'm not sure how old I was, uh, I started to mow my grandmother's lawn, kind of like my first job. And when I was 12, over the summer, I didn't really have anything else going on in my life. So I could mow the lawn Tuesday morning, Thursday afternoon, whenever my grandmother or one of my parents or somebody could give me a ride over, I could cut the grass. And being my grandma, I never got paid so much for one hour of work in my life. But whole other story. But over the years, as I got older, uh, when I got to be later in high school, I got a job at CVS Drugstore, my first job, and I started to be a little bit busier. So the times when I could get over to Grandma's house to cut the grass, there weren't as many of them. And I remember more than once saying to my grandmother, Grandma, can I just come over, like, Sunday after church and mow the lawn? And Grandma said, no, we don't work on Sunday. And I would try to argue, come on, it's an hour. Like, it's not that, I barely break a sweat. It's fun. It's like exercise. Nope, we don't work on Sunday. Maybe you grew up in a similar family. Maybe you have, you, you hear my grandma say that and you're like, darn right. Maybe you, some of us, or we know people that look back to the good old days when all the businesses were closed on Sundays and things like that. And if you think that, that's fine. I mean, the good old days, maybe they were good. I don't know. But I think it's vital to remember that Sabbath is meant to be a gift. So if you're sitting there right now and you're like, oh man, taking a day off, that sounds like a lot of work. And now, you know, one more thing God's going to condemn me for. And these Christians have all these rules. I don't want you to leave here thinking that. Sabbath is meant to be a gift of rest for us to take time off from our obligations and our work. It's not meant to be just another thing. Oh, great. Even in my free time, God's watching me. Like, not another thing to, to stress us out and to weigh us down. So if you don't remember anything else from this morning, I mean, maybe the Simpsons clip would be memorable. I don't know. But Sabbath rest is a gift. It's not a rule. So with that said, I want to offer a couple other points uh, that relate to Sabbath that I think are principles that we can draw from this as Christians to help us think, think about it. And the first thing I would say is that there's two enemies of leisure time, of play, of free time. One enemy would be the enemy of laziness. Laziness, uh, both these enemies will see break the rhythm of that six work and one rest. That rhythm of working hard and resting well. Both of these enemies I'm going to mention break that, that rhythm. And the first one, laziness, breaks the rhythm um, by, turning, by, by resting way too much, by not working well. Or even in another way, I think laziness breaks the rhythm by turning rest into just consumption. In my opinion, there's nothing wrong if you're blessed with a couple hours someday to sit on your couch and binge watch your favorite show on Netflix or watch a movie. That's, in my, again, in my opinion, that's totally fine. But I think you cross the line from that into laziness when that's like all you do in your free time. And I can't tell you, I can't quantify like what that looks like. That's something that each of us has to identify on our own. But I think if any time you're given a free moment, you just plop it in front of the TV or bring it up Netflix on your phone, I think that's maybe when you're crossing the line into, into laziness. 
When I was preparing for this message this morning, I was thinking about, even talking to some people, uh, friends of mine, who I think do leisure really well. Some of them are here this morning. I, I think of my friend Jess, who ever since I've known her, just every moment she has when she's not working, she's just hiking, on the go, outdoors, enjoying life. In the winter, she's calling people up, trying to put together broomball games on the frozen pond. In the summer, she's always playing frisbee, outdoors, enjoying the world. I think of my friend Dan, who uh, I talked to him a little bit about, thinking I was going to talk to him about some of the DIY projects he does around his house. And I was fascinated to learn that, and I didn't know this about him, but he just really loves woodworking. Taking a piece of wood and, and spending hour upon hour shaping it and loving it really, loving, I mean, that's not a wrong word to use, and creating something absolutely beautiful and amazing out of this piece of wood. Or another person in, this, in, the, in here this morning, uh, my friend Anna, who reads like really thick like theology and philosophy books simply because that's how she connects with God, that's how she learns, and she loves to do it. Or I think of my mother-in-law, who has recently got involved in community theater, going out in the community and being, she was actually uh, played Pinocchio in Shrek recently, which is a whole really funny because ever since I've known her, she is someone who does not like fart jokes or crass humor like at all. So the fact that she was in Shrek playing Pinocchio was very amusing for me. Um, but again, there's someone who is, is not just staying home and watching TV, but going out and building relationships with people and, and building community. All these people use their free time to better themselves, to learn new things, and to have fun. And they remind me that leisure is so much more than just sitting on the couch and watching Netflix. The other enemy of leisure, then, is uh, workaholicness. I'm not sure if that's really a word. But to go with laziness, I added a nest to the end of it. And in this one, uh, the rhythm of work and leisure is broken by really not resting at all, by working all the time. And like laziness, I can't tell you when you become a workaholic. That's something that you need to know on your own. But obviously, I would say without rest, if you are a workaholic, eventually it's going to lead to burnout. Your relationship with God, with other people, is going to be sacrificed. But what's interesting to me, as I was doing some research on this, on average, people in, in countries like America, richer countries, tend to uh, have more free time and do less work than maybe our grandparents' generation, people 60 or so years ago, and people in poorer countries throughout the world. About a century ago, people living then thought that all the growth in technology would make our lives easier. Microwaves, we're not going to have to cook, we're just throwing in there. I mean, we're just going to have so much more free time. John Maynard Keynes, actually in 1930, said, our grandchildren would work around three hours a day and probably only by choice. Imagine most of you work more than three hours a day. But even if statistically they tell us we work less, most of us don't feel like we work less. And part of the reason for that, and again, there's lots of reasons for this. You can probably do your look stuff up if you want to and find other ones. But one of the ones I thought was really interesting is that we understand time in relation to money. And maybe you're like, well, duh, of course we do. But a few centuries ago, we started as a culture to use clocks more to synchronize labor than we had before. Before, it was kind of like more living like an Amish person. You just, again, work when it's sunlight and you get done working when the sun goes down. 
But with the Industrial Revolution and people working more in factories, clocks became really 9 to 5, 8 to 4, to judge how you spend your time. But as time became related to money, time became more valuable, and people started to worry more about wasting it. And since we see time as very valuable, we feel it's much more scarcer, and there's an urgency to make every single moment count. One study was actually done where the, the scientists gave two different groups of people a piece of music to listen to that was like 86 seconds long. I'm not sure why they just go with 90 seconds, but whatever. And before the song was played, one group of people was asked to think about their, their work, their hourly wage, to calculate the money they make, something along those lines. The other group wasn't. And what they found was that the group that was asked about their, their, their wages before the study, before listening to the music, ended up feeling less happy and more impatient as the music was playing. One of the researchers said they wanted to get into the end of the experiment so they could do something that was more profitable. So we struggle with leisure, with taking time off, because we're always thinking about our work. And we feel that spending time away from it may be lazy in itself, any time away from it. And even... If we do take leisure, our struggle is to get our mind away from our work. So you take time away from your work, but you're still thinking about it all the time. Or even maybe reading a book or something to get better at your job. Joseph Piper wrote a really good book about leisure. And he wrote that no one who looks to leisure simply to restore his working powers will ever discover the fruit of leisure. He will never know the quickening that follows almost as though from some deep sleep. So what he's saying is that if you spend your day off just thinking about and studying on how to get better at your job, you're not really taking leisure time. You're still in that work mindset. You all probably have heard of Charles Darwin, someone very well-known, very famous with his uh, theory of evolution, whether you, I know it's a controversial subject in churches and maybe people here disagree, who knows, but whether you agree with it or not, uh, you can't deny that Charles Darwin was an incredibly influential person who his work has influenced like every branch of science. Well, near the end of his life, he said that if I had my life to live again, I would have made a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once every week. For perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would thus have been kept active through use. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and injurious to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. So what this guy who spent so much of his life doing scientific experiments and observation, writing books, and all those things that have, are the reason why people remember him, looked back and said, you know what I wish I would have done more of? Well, I looked at art, read poetry, did things like that. We need, as tempted as we are to always be in the work mindset, we really do need leisure time away from it. So if you're someone who tends towards the workaholic side of things, I would challenge you to make an intentional decision to seek out times of rest and to work on learning to trust God to run the world. To step away and experience the gift of Sabbath that God has given you. And if you're someone who tends towards the laziness side, I would challenge you to make a decision to look up and to pursue a new hobby, something that's more than just consumption but that you can do to build relationship with others and relationship with God. So moving on from the enemies of leisure, then, I want to say that leisure embraces the moments of radical amazement 
in God's world. Our challenge is to let go of this idea of time as money and to step into God's idea of trusting God with our time. And this is challenging because so much of our life is about producing things, about making something of yourself. I think of this with my kids. Our temptation is to push our kids to become successful, to become something. Just not that long ago, many of you parents in this room have gone through this. Maybe some of you are looking towards it. But our daughter, Junia, is going to start kindergarten in the fall. So I got to take her to kindergarten orientation over at Why Missing Hills. And there was like 10 parents there for my segment of time. And we got there, and the teachers took the kids away, and the rest of us got to listen to the principal talk about whatever he talked about. I really was paying attention, actually. But, <laughs> but it was interesting because uh, he said that they were going to give the kids, like, tests. Not, like, sit them down and have a test, but, you know, see if they, what they knew about shapes and colors and letters. And when he said that they were going to do, there was a part of me that was like, what if she doesn't know enough? Like, what if she's the worst one? What if I'm a bad, you know, that's going to reflect badly on me. And I don't know, maybe social media makes us even bigger of a thing now than it used to be. I don't know. But we have a friend from college whose kids, we don't really talk to them anymore, so we only know what they're up to because of things like Facebook. But a friend of ours from college, their daughter was born like literally the day or two around when our daughter was born. And sometime, I don't know how old they were, but she put something on Facebook like, my daughter can count to 13. And my first thought was, no, she can't. Like, she may be making 13 sounds that you think are counting to 13. She's not counting to 13. My second thought was, Junia, come here. We've got to work on your counting. <laughs> like, we have this pressure as, if you're a parent, you have this pressure that you want to take your kids and make something of them. From the moment of conception till college, you know, how much can we educate? How can we get ahead of the other kids out there so we can get the scholarship or the job or whatever it might be. About a month ago, I was listening to Mike and Mike in the Morning on ESPN Radio. Some of you may listen to them. They're pretty silly. They talk about sports and other stuff. But they were talking about, I guess, a trend, a newer trend of, of kids who specialize in, like, one sport from a very young age. So when I was younger, well, other kids, not me, but kids would play like maybe three sports, like football in the fall and, and baseball in the, in the spring, things like that. But now there's so much pressure that parents want to have their, their five, six, seven-year-old kid just play baseball year-round. And the pressure is if, if my kid doesn't play baseball year-round, then he's not going to make the traveling team and he's not going to get the scholarship and he's not going to go pro because that kid over there is focusing on, on that one sport. But Mike and Mike then talked about all these different studies that have been done about how children who specialize in one sport from a young age are, are more likely to be injured. They ironically have a higher rate of adult physical inactivity, and they're more likely, even by the time they're teenagers, to burn out and to not enjoy the sport and just to quit anyway. So this, this idea that we're going to pressure our kids so they can accomplish this thing ends up ironically backfiring. And I share all that simply to say that when I think of leisure, part of it is just stepping back from the, the rat race of the world and just being amazed by the world around us. Just sometimes I sit in my house and look at my kids, especially, well, mostly when they're being nice to each other, but I look at them and I'm just like, oh my good Lord, 
there are two like other human beings in this house that like weren't here before. They have a mind that like works like mine, I guess. Like they're saying things and there's blood pumping through their veins. Like this is incredible. And I think I'm challenged that I need more moments like that as opposed to the moments of you need to make this, you know, you need to be better, be better, be better. And if you don't have kids, I mean, I'm, you know, don't feel left out. I think that's something that all of us, whatever it is, just stepping back from the, the run fast work world and find things. Maybe it's those pictures from the Hubble telescope of the beauty of the universe. Maybe it's hiking up a mountain and seeing a beautiful sunset. Maybe it's a night spent with good friends, drinking wine and having a good time. Whatever it might be, we need more times of just looking at the world and being utterly amazed that we're here and that we have this gift of existence. Uh, Abraham Heschel uh, has another quote. I actually got this from a recent podcast by Rob Bell that I was listening to. He says, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement, which is where I got the word. I didn't put that together myself. Radical amazement. To get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. Maybe we have more moments of amazement and thus spirituality. The last thing about leisure I want to say then is that leisure, I believe, is a discipline that must be cultivated in a life lived towards God. If you've been around Koinos, you know that Tim and others who stand up here talk a lot about things called spiritual disciplines. Just this idea that though God loves you unconditionally and we're saved by grace and we can't earn God's love, kind of the flip side of that is that if you want to grow in your faith as a, as a, as a follower of God, that it does take a little work. You need to set aside time for things like prayer or Bible reading or going to community group or serving others. These are things that, that help us grow step by step in our faith. And I would say that this, this idea of Sabbath, of leisure, of play is a spiritual discipline as well. And I think what helps, think about, what helps me in this is it's not, again, it's not a rule. It's not, oh my gosh, you better take one day off and not do any work or you're gonna, you know, God's going to be mad. It might be where you're at in your life. You may be able to take a full day off. Maybe it's just a couple hours on a Wednesday afternoon, Saturday morning. It, I don't think it matters the when or even the how much time. As much as we need those moments, those times, when we turn off the computer, unplug the phone, don't check the email, and look for the moments of radical amazement. And it's not easy. That's why I think it's a discipline. We need to make the choice to do it. But it's something that as we do it, I think we start to see, we will start to see the trust in God that is found by trusting God to run the universe and not ourselves flowing over into the rest of our lives. The, the, the attitude of leisure that we learn on that one day or that couple of hours will start to come into the other six days of work. Joseph Piper says that leisure is an attitude of the mind, a condition of the soul, Leisure implies an attitude of inward calm and of silence. So the way he's saying there is, yes, there's a time component to it. I've been talking about that you take that time away to enjoy life, to enjoy others. But as you do that, you're going to start to bring leisure into, into your work, into your obligations. And yeah, they're always going to be work and they're always going to be obligations. And we're probably never going to look at laundry as a fun time. But maybe just a little bit, some of those things that we have to do 
we'll start to see the beauty in them as we start to have more of an attitude of leisure in our daily lives. So I just encourage all of us, uh, today is Psalm 118 verse 24 says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And unless you're someone who has to go to work this afternoon or has other obligations, and again, I understand that's a reality, but I encourage us just to look at this day, this moment that we are given, and how are we going to enjoy this day or other days in the future if you're not able to do it today, but Again, a night with friends. I, I, so many good memories of sitting around playing Settlers of Catan and dominating people. Or losing yourself in a book or a movie. Just enjoying the art of it. Spending time with your kids, your friends, your family. Walking by yourself. Whatever it might be. These days, these moments are a gift from God. And may we just enjoy them as such. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for bringing all of us here today. Uh, I know that there's other things each of us could be doing. We're all, everybody here is very busy and has made a choice to, even by being here, set aside time of Sabbath and of leisure. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to make choices that help us to have more uh, just leisure time, to look at the world differently, to have that rhythm in our lives, to look for those moments of radical amazement where we can grow closer to others and ultimately closer to you. Thank you once again for this moment, this day. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.